welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Let me pray for us as we begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, several years ago, I was thinking about a time where Ashley and I used to live back in our apartment in Arlington. And we decided one day to take a date and ride all the way down to Mount Vernon And so we prepared some waters and some snacks and and pumped the tires up and hit the road for a 34-mile bike ride, 17 miles one way, 17 miles back. But when we hit the road, something wasn't quite right. Um, Ashley is in much better shape than I am, and she was taking forever that day. Uh, She was so far behind me, and she kept yelling, slow down, uh, just so that I would wait for her. I just figured, you know, maybe she's really good at running. Maybe she's really good at swimming. Maybe she's just horrible on a bike. Um, But the 17 miles then were torture. We were in the hot sun. It was taking forever. We finally got to Mount Vernon. We were tired. We were hot. We were angry. And it wasn't one of our finer moments on one of our dates. And so we knew enough about marriage by this point to stop and take a break. So we took a break. We sat in the shade, we had a little food, refueled, got our wits about us, and afterwards I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go check on her bike real quick. So I go to the bike, I turn it upside down, try and flip the tire, the tire doesn't turn on its own. Aha. So what ended up happening was that the brake had been rubbing against the tire the entire 17 miles. So she really is in good shape to be able to do this. So I unhitched the brake completely so that she had one functional brake on the way home. And the ride back home was so much different. It was so much better. Um, But what's funny is because she was more in shape, the roles reversed. uh, And now that the tire wasn't being rubbed by the brakes, uh, she was actually going too fast for me. And I was the one in the back going, hey, would you slow down? I'm way back here trying to catch up. That 17 miles was a lot better. It's funny how something so small can make something go so horribly wrong, right? This little tiny brake rubbing against the tire kept us from enjoying fully the experience of going on this bike ride together. And when we think about life, there are these situations all the time where there are the littlest things that will keep us from enjoying God's life to the full. And we don't often stop and ask what those things are. We don't check the brake to make sure it's rubbing against the, not rubbing against the tire. So we get to our reading this morning. We've been in a series in, in Ephesians. And so chapter four of the epistle to the Ephesians St. Paul is uh, elucidating and and telling us about a system of thought, uh, a way of life that God has saved us from. It's something that if we were to take time to look at the small ways that it's created, 
we would cast them off and have a more enjoyable life in Christ. It's the thing God saved us from. If we would cast it off, we would be more fully alive in the Lord. And now when I think of, uh, it doesn't mean on the one hand that suffering is gone. And what it does do is it gives a usefulness to suffering. It gives purpose to joys. It gives purpose to our sorrows. And it gives purpose to those things that seem to be mundane, daily, rhythmic parts of our lives. St. Paul is talking about the way we ought to walk. It's how he begins the passage. He says, be careful how you walk. And by walk, he doesn't mean like frolicking, jumping. What he's talking about is the normal course of the day. Think about the course of a day for you. We first wake up. How many times do you hit the snooze alarm before you're finally able to kick your feet out of bed? What's the first thing that you do when you get up? And if you're like me, you probably sit in bed for a few minutes and you quickly swipe through your email, do a quick Facebook check, check the news, do a little Instagram. Okay, now I can get up, right? And so it starts like that. And I make the coffee. I get my son's breakfast. I try and do a little bit of work before he gets up, which often doesn't happen because he likes to get up early. And you have your own morning routines as well. Then it's this mad dash to get out the door to get everybody ready for school or work, to get ready for back-to-back Zoom meetings, perhaps. And in the course of your day, you probably have tens of conversations with people. Some are work-related. Others are deeper than that. And then sometime in the afternoon, you realize, I never thought about dinner. And then you either pull something out of the freezer to do a frozen meal, Or you eat out, or you bite the bullet, and you try and make something, and you end up eating late that day. Then there's more caring for pets and or children, and then you attempt to wind down before bed. How do we wind down? Maybe it's another email, Facebook swipe, news, Instagram. Is it a book, a prayer time, TV? When you think about the course of a day, the rhythms of a day, a week, a month, or even a year... That is how you walk. So instead of translating it to walk, I think what he's saying is something more like, how do you go about the course of your days? So be careful how you go about the course of your days. So the concern that he's posing to the Ephesians is that they should no longer walk like the Gentiles do. And he says, in the futility of their minds. So what is the futility of their minds? And I think if we work backwards, we can see St. Paul's logic In verse 18, he says that the Gentiles had a hardness of heart towards God. And that hardness of heart that they had led to a particular kind of ignorance that they possessed now. Then the devices and the desires of their hearts lead them to the confusion of their minds. If we don't want to know God, the God who loves us, the God who created all things, then we can't properly know how to rightly use creation. That's his logic. He doesn't say that every single person who is not a Christian in the world is deluded as somebody else. It's not about intelligence. uh, But what he's saying is it's about rightly discerning God in his works, in his creation, in the ways that we walk, which includes that day to day stuff. Uh, And as one writer says, it's. Not unfair to say that this is the direction which every life is facing that's out of touch with God. 
And this is the kind of life which will be reproduced in a community in which Christian influence is not active. So the futility of the mind that he's talking about, it distorts the ways that we love creation and that we love ourselves and that we love one another because we don't love the things that God loves. One of those distorted loves, if we were to pick out an example, we could talk about consumerism and the attempts that we make to monetize human relationships. There was a really good documentary uh, a while back called The Social Dilemma. It was on Netflix. And it looked at the darker side of social media. And what it talks about and it highlights is the amount of data mining that's happening with social networks. Um, and, and what it does to predict what people are going to do and even control human psychology. It sounds crazy, but those algorithms are designed to get you to look at your phone. Right? Think about that for a second. Somebody's figured out by the things that you look at, the, the videos that you watch, the things that you like or dislike, the articles that you read, they figured out how to deliver you a stream of content to get you constantly looking at something. And that changes your behavior. It changes how you talk with other people. It's not a neutral ritual. Um, it affects behavior. So there's a lot more, you know, we could say about social media, but that's not the point. It's just an example. But we need to become aware of its underpinnings and the stories that it's telling and its messaging. And then if we're not aware of those things, it becomes something that subjects us to behavioral changes and philosophies and messaging about what is the good life. So this passage in in Ephesians chapter four, it calls us to stop. It calls us to consider, calls us to take stock, not to run through the course of our days aimlessly, consuming the contents of humility, but like in our example, to make sure the brake isn't rubbing against the tire. It's such a small thing. We got to stop. It's disruptive to stop and consider. uh, And we're called to be disruptors where Christ is not known. And I don't mean that in the sense of, you know, creating a culture war type of Christianity, but in a way that's humble and in a way that's Christ-like and even subversive. Our book of common prayer is fascinating. It's got a category of saints that it calls the renewers of society, the renewers of society. These are people who in their Christ-likeness disrupted the normal order of things. The normal order of the world, they upset systemic injustices, they provided for the needs of the oppressed, and they created new ways of thinking about the world and human relationships that were more in line with God's kingdom, things that weren't found in this world's kingdom. So the church should be renewing itself by casting off uh, disordered loves and then relearning the way of Jesus. That's what he says in verses 20 and 21. I had known, by way of example, there were some folks back in California that had this really great ministry of helping the homeless get jobs. It was a real team effort, and what they would do is they would prepare a man or a woman with some job skills, and then how to write a resume and a cover letter, and then they would make sure that that person was bathed, clothed, nourished, had a haircut, and if they were a man, they had had a good shave. Some of the before and the after pictures of these people are incredible. You would never know in a million years that these people had been sleeping on the streets less than a week ago. 
If that person who had been given this new life had started to shift back in their appearance, to let themselves go, to not take a shower for several days on end, to go back to the dirty and tattered clothes because they were more comfortable in that space, then that person would slowly bring themselves back into the way of thinking that they had been saved from. They have to maintain the newness that they've been given and form new habits around how to live into that newness. And so it's not a perfect analogy, but it's a helpful way to think about what happens in Christ. We enter into a new family. We've been created as new people. You and I are new. And we don't lose our bodies, but we do cast off what you know, someone has said, the vesture of our sinfulness. And it says in chapter four that this new self that we've been given has been created directly by God after the likeness of God. There is no heavenly advantage to you and I putting back on old spiritual clothes and forgetting these new life habits and patterns that come with being a new person in Jesus Christ. And that's what St. Paul means when he says in verse 22, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So we're, we're to cast off disordered loves. To cast them off, we have to recognize those things that disorder and deform the things that we love. There's a really good modern author that has a lot to offer us here. His name is James K. Smith, and he wrote a helpful book called You Are What You Love. And he talks about, in that book, secular liturgies, secular liturgies that aim to deform the things that we love in our affections. So when he's talking about liturgy in this book, what he's talking about is a shorthand way of referring to the words that we speak and hear and the rituals that we carry. And and those rituals and words that carry an ultimate story about who we are, about what we're for, and about what the good life is. So these are things that we, the words and the rituals that we experience that carry an ultimate story about who we are, what we're for, and what the good life is. So as those who have been made new in Christ, what this passage calls us to is recalibration. We're supposed to recalibrate ourselves in the new creation, which St. Paul talks about as the renewal of the mind. He also mentions this in the book of Romans as well. And it reminded me of when I used to work in the coffee industry before I was ordained. One of the things that they would ask us to do all the time is to recalibrate the thermometers every day. The thermometers that were in those metal milk frothers, uh, the the pitchers, because if you didn't recalibrate them, things would be off with the milk. The milk's supposed to be steamed to about 150 degrees, and sometimes you just get too busy, and you forget to recalibrate the thermometer, or you forget, but eventually you realize something's off when you're steaming the milk, and it starts to boil over on your hand, or it starts to smell really bad, or it's just taking longer to heat up than normal. And when that happens... I remember taking the thermometer and recalibrating it and then doing it again. And this thing was like 20 degrees off. And so it really was almost boiling and it made the milk taste terrible. The way that you recalibrate a thermometer, it sounds complicated, but it only takes a few minutes. What you got to do is you got to take a pair of needle nose pliers. You got to fill a small vessel with ice and a tiny bit of water so the ice can move around. And then you plunge the thermometer stem into the ice which should be 33 degrees, just above freezing. And then you take the pliers 
and you just slightly turn the little needle so that it's at 33 degrees. It only takes a few minutes, but that short five-minute investment has implications on the taste of the drinks for the rest of the day. So it's hugely important. And you and I, we need to be recalibrating ourselves, taking these little moments to renew our minds with Jesus, casting off the disordered loves and returning to the way of Christ, our new life. If we try to cruise through life just keeping the same old rhythms that we've been doing without asking how they're affecting us, we run the risk of getting off somewhere. And we'll finally feel it down the road and we wonder how we got there. So I want to encourage us uh, to take something like a liturgical audit of the, the liturgies that are misshaping us. Take a few minutes each day to ask God about what are the daily and weekly and monthly routines that we have? What are they telling us about ourselves? There are things that we do that do things back to us. So think about what you do when you first wake up and the last thing you do before you go to bed. Consider how you prepare for the workday. And then when you're at work, consider what the story is that's embedded in the work that you do and your practices there. Think about how you eat meals together and spend leisure time. I mean, for example, when you're eating a meal, do you sit down? Uh, or is a meal something just to, to breeze through to get to the next thing? How do we talk about the work that we're doing with other people? Um, if you have children, what do your parenting rhythms look like? And how are they communicating a vision of renewal to your children? And we could keep thinking of more and more questions along those lines. And, and I would encourage you to do that. It takes time and it takes intentionality to recalibrate. A church can only be a church of that kind of renewal if each of its members is practicing that kind of liturgical audit. Whether or not you call it a liturgical audit is okay. Uh, if, if we want to use creation properly, then we have to be conformed to God's vision of the good life. And that's found in the scriptures and it's found in the history of how God's people have worshiped. And I want to encourage you this fall, one of the things that we're going to be doing, save your Tuesday nights from late September through November. What we're going to be doing is, is having a time of food, prayer, and, and discussion about the way of Jesus in the Anglican tradition. Our little slice of, of the church Catholic, the church more broadly around the world through history. And, and that's going to be a helpful time together to return to Jesus. It's also called confirmation class. Um, but save Tuesday nights for that. We're called constantly to recalibrate our lives with the things that we have learned and the things that we are learning about Jesus. So that the new life that we've been given in Christ, we're, we're actually living out day to day. And we're not trying to put back on the sinful vesture that God has cast off. In that process of renewal and recalibration, I think God realigns our loves and he realigns our visions of the good life so that we can see the world around us as God sees it. That kind of renewal in our hearts creates what I think is a healthy counterculture for people to discover Jesus. And that's what we want to become as we spend time with the Lord each day. Continue to take stock. Take out five minutes to be quiet before the Lord and recalibrate. Continue to renew your minds through casting off disordered loves and returning to the way of Jesus. Let me pray for us. 
Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Look with compassion upon the heartfelt desires of your servants and purify our disordered affections that we may behold your eternal glory in the face of Christ Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen.